Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected, and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. This week, I'm talking with Summer Edwards. Here's a little bit from Summer. The only way to satisfying work should not be leaving the regular workforce. We can't keep hemorrhaging talented women, mothers, and anyone else who isn't satisfied with the way the workforce is set up. We need those voices in our institution. And that led me onto this idea of Lead Mama Lead and creating community around women wanting more from their career and asking their workplaces to give it to them. Summer is my first guest from Canberra and we had an excellent conversation. Before I tell you about it, here is a quick word from our sponsor for this week. A brand new product to market, Roy Mint Company produce the highest quality fresh mints you can find and through a connection to local artists have created an entirely different mint experience. Available only in select coffee shops, partner locations and online, you can learn more at roymintco.com and share their journey through following Roy Mint Co. on Instagram. Arriving in Canberra for the first time in a while, I am struck by how calm it is here. It could be because I live in the inner city or because of the size of this place. I like the layout, the proximity to nature, and the embracing of monument. Summer has a calmness that mirrors the city she lives in, and she is quietly leading the way on a number of fronts, including helping women find work that is both flexible and responsible, and showing how it is possible to successfully work on a number of concurrent projects. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you enjoy listening to Summer Edwards on the subtle disruption of our current economic design. <laughs> so we're at Tilly's Cafe, which is a bit of an old Canberra establishment. A lot. When I went to university, we used to spend all day studying here with a cup of coffee and a bowl of wedges. And yeah. It's one of the few cafes around the place that are sort of open every night until 10 p.m. So it's just a good spot to head out for a quiet night that isn't a bar, but you can get a glass of wine. And, yeah. And it's a bit of the sort of inner North Canberra. And I just held one of my events here just just this last week. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. yeah. So right, right here, actually, where we're sitting. Yeah. That was exciting. Yeah, cool. <laughs> All right, let's talk about that in a sec. I heard that, oh, well, I can see on the sign that Tilly's been around for quite a while as well, and it's like one of the last live music venues in Canberra. Is that yeah, right? They, yeah. I mean, they've backed off a lot with the live music, which is a shame, but they've just started to pick it up again. Yeah. So, that yeah, I've sort of seen a few pretty cool bands here over the years, like um, The Cruel Sea and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. And you said, so in a North Canberra, I know Inner North Melbourne has a certain thing. Is there like a bit of a thing about the Inner North of Canberra? Probably a little similar. Yeah. Um, not quite as hipster, but it, it, is, it is the more hipster place of Canberra. So I think there are a lot of similarities. ANU's in the Inner North, okay. um, the university. So a lot of um, the more kind of left-leaning, enviro-conscious 
graduates from there who stick around tend to live in the inner north. Right. So it's quite a quite a big sustainability community and lots of students around. So yeah. yeah. And you, by the sound of it, you studied at ANU? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I've been in Canberra since 2001, okay. apart from a couple, two separate years where I've lived in Beijing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And what did you study? The first degree that I enrolled in was actuarial studies. Yeah. <laughs> because I was a maths whiz. Were you? Yeah. And it took me five weeks to realise that I didn't want to do that for my career and uh, that's not where my soul was. So yeah. I changed to Chinese and finance because I was always fascinated with foreign languages and my parents used to take me to Chinatown as a kid. We lived in regional New South Wales and we were vegetarians as well and you couldn't buy any ethnic food or you know culturally diverse food outside of Sydney. So yeah. we used to drive up and get a big shop from the supermarket right. in Chinatown and that's where my interest in China started. Yeah. So I did that and that took me six years, included a year of studying in China. And then I did my master's in applied anthropology and participatory development. And that led into my career in community development. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I'm sure we'll fill that in a little bit more, but tell us about the event that you had here. Not too long ago. So that event was related to my newest initiative, which is called Lead Mama Lead. Essentially, it's a social change movement that's aiming to empower working mothers to ask more of their careers and demand more from their workplaces. Because my experience as a working mother was that the workplace was very unsatisfying if you get the flexibility that you want as a working mother, then you don't get the opportunities and the challenges that you want in your job. And I didn't know a single working mother who was happy either with their, the work that they were doing or with the conditions and flexibility that they were getting from their job. Yeah. So Lead Mama Lead has grown out of some of my other initiatives and the learning that I've gained in that and finding my way to a place to, to work in a way that suits me and challenges me and satisfies me in my career, but also gives me the time I want as a mother of young children. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, talk about how you're doing that, first of all, because that, I mean, not in my head, I mean, you're, you're thinking specifically about mothers and that, I guess that's your niche and that's probably where the most need is, but I think about it as a father yeah. as well and just people in general, like the yeah. way we work I don't think it's well designed for how we kind of want to live anymore or how mm. we, our work isn't designed the way we, it doesn't have to be designed the way it is anymore. Yeah. Anyway, talk to me about, about that. I totally work. agree with you and I kind of see what I want to do with Lead Mama Lead as part of the bigger picture but I hope that if the need is acute with mothers we can be the, the starting yeah. point that leads because we ultimately we want fathers and we want people who have caring responsibilities with mental health or with their parents or people who just want to have a career in the arts but also want to do work that pays them. We just need more flexibility in the way we work and I never liked the nine to five just you know stuck in an office in front of a computer. I always wanted a bit more flexibility and I used to think maybe I should do a PhD but really what I was desiring was that freedom <laughs> that comes with being able to set your own schedule. Yeah. So 
for me, my journey was I was working in community development just three days a week when I returned from work after having my first child. And I'd, I'd loved my job before I returned to work. And I even went back when he was just five months old and I was still technically on maternity leave. I went back two days a week working from home when he was only five months old. So, so I was really keen to get back to the work. And then I went back to the office when he was 10 months old and we had a childcare place, but just three days a week. And very quickly I became very pigeonholed and very unsatisfied in my work. And I couldn't see an escape. I felt like if I wanted to get a new job, I'd have to work full time. And I didn't want to do that at that point in my son's life. So at one point in that unhappiness, I had a close friend and mentor who said to me, I mentioned that I was really interested in sustainable fashion. No one was writing about it in the way that I thought it needed to be written about and, you know, maybe I should start a blog. And she jumped on that and she just said, do it. You'll learn so much and you may be, there are ways to make money out of it, but even if you don't, it's worth doing for what you'll learn. And that journey sort of led me to later taking maternity leave with my second child and learning so much from the experience of writing a blog that I then had the confidence to launch my freelance career in community development and evaluation of social impact projects. So it was an interesting experience because that side project taught me so much in personal development and career development that I've actually been able to really accelerate my career and develop the flexibility that I wanted. So to be able to work from home, to be able to set my own hours, be able to do challenging projects that satisfy me. Yeah. And then that coming to that place, which was essentially at the start of this year and realizing that none of my friends had that, they were all unhappy like I was, but also thinking that the only way to satisfying work should not be leaving the the regular workforce. We can't keep hemorrhaging talented women, mothers, and anyone else who isn't satisfied with the way the workforce is set up. We need those voices in our institution. Mm. And that led me onto this idea of Lead Mama Lead and creating community around women wanting more from their career and asking their workplaces to give it to them. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Like, there's only so many bloggers that the world needs, I suppose, right? Yeah, like there's, yeah. <laughs> there's lots of other things that need to be done yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a bit about how you're actually, like, do you have a, are you starting to see things change or are you, is it very early days still or, you know, is there, you know, are you, are you in workforces like educating them as well or is it more about no. the women who want it at the moment? It's very early days, but I'm a community development practitioner and I see my unique sort of offering as building peer-to-peer learning opportunities and creating community. So community development is about harnessing the skills and talents that exist within community and building community around some sort of social change idea. So that's where I'm attacking it from. There are other women and consultants and organisations that work at it from a workplace perspective, but I'm really, I'm working on it from the empowerment and peer-to-peer learning perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about 
Tell me about how you've been, what are the principles of community development? Like what are you actually, how are you going about doing this? Again, it's very early days, but for me, community development is really about creating the space and being a facilitator for the connections that happen within the community. Yeah. So creating a space where those conversations can happen in a safe way and inspiring those conversations to happen, but recognising that it's not about me. It's not about me as an expert. It's about women in the community as experts in their own lives and learning from one another. Yeah. And then seeing how they can apply those insights into their own yeah. journey. I know it is early days, but are there, what are some of the conversations that are coming out? Are there some interesting things that people are starting to talk about? Yeah, some, I started very early on this year, I just created a Facebook group around the idea. And it was because I already have so much on in my life. I was like, I can't work on this problem. I've got no time for it, but it was taking up a lot of brain space. So I thought I'll just start with a, with a group and I'll just share examples of mothers doing great things in their careers yeah. and just and I kept the more I started sharing it because the way algorithms work the more stories came up in my feed and then I was just yeah. sharing it but women who were in the group started to say you've changed the way I've thought about my career and I like I thought oh you know I have to wait till the kids were through school or I, you know, I just put things on hold my ambitions because the message I, that we get from workplaces are, is, oh, you're working flexible, therefore you can't, you can't be given as much responsibility. And so the feedback I'm getting from women is that just having these conversations, these small conversations are actually having profound mm. impacts in, in the way that they think about themselves and their leadership capacity. And for me, leadership is not about management, it's about your ability to enact change or influence within where you work or how you act within community or society. So it's, it's a very inclusive idea about everyone embracing their leadership capacity, no matter what their dreams for their career are. So, yeah. 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 The things, well, wait, let me ask you probably a pretty dumb question. <laughs> Is it possible to have, you know, the flexibility and the responsibility? There is one woman in the group who, when she joined the Facebook group, she was added by a friend because she was having a horrible time on her return to work after her second child. Yeah. And within the space of four months, she went from that to having negotiated, she only works two days a week, and negotiated challenging work where she has actual responsibility for stuff that's going to go into legislation. So it is possible, but if you're in that sort of an organisation, managers need to allow the space for it to, yeah. to happen. And I can't do much to change managers' attitudes, but I can do what I can to empower women to ask for more and to make good cases for more. Yeah. Um, and even if it doesn't work every time, hopefully by having those conversations with managers, managers will start to see the need for change. Yeah. Do you, how do you make a good case for it? Like what sort of things do you recommend people start talking about? Well, I'm just, my own experience is that 
You don't have to be working for 40 hours a week to do meaningful, productive, yeah. impactful work. And I work, I work for one client long term about eight days a month, so it's not a lot. But I, the impact I've had on that, their organisation is significant, and that's as a consultant. But there's no reason that you can't have a, a part-time worker within your organisation making that sort of an impact. It's just about changing the way managers think about that. Yeah. And, yeah. And stopping, stopping the belief that because you're not there for two or three days a week, that that work isn't going to happen. Because often the decision that's made in the organisation is, okay, well, you can't be responsible for that project, you have to share it with someone else. But then that person who's part-time will go back the next week and nothing's happened on it anyway in the time that they've been gone. Yeah. So there's no reason that they couldn't have been responsible for it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess maybe you can start to talk about this as well. Maybe you, I guess there's been some research done about this stuff too, but just, you know, I, reflecting on my own preferences and ways of working, like I, I can't work on just one thing for 40 hours. Like I need mm. to mix it up. I need to have, I think for me, three projects on the go is good. There's a few things about that. Like some, there's often a, a pause in a project. Like I hit a roadblock mm. and I'm just, all I need to do is wait. Like there's nothing else to do but wait. And I find that having, like sometimes a project just takes all my creative energy and I don't have anything left for that particular project. But I, I can switch context to that point and put a lot of energy into this other project over here. And, you know, for me, I think the maximum I could spend on any one project is probably about 20 hours a week. Mm, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly how I feel. I don't know that everyone works <laughs> yeah. like that because actually yeah. I used to get all of this advice from because I was building, I'm building a blog and so I'm in the whole online entrepreneurship space. Yeah. And the advice I kept getting was just work on one idea, otherwise you're going to fail in all of them. And it was only listening to your podcast <laughs> that I realised, actually, I'm not alone in this need to work on many things. Yeah, okay. And I came across this really great quote today, which really actually brought tears to my eyes because it felt like, oh, gosh, this is how I feel about work. So I'll read it. It's from Steel Like an Artist by Austin Cleon. If you have two or three real passions, don't feel like you have to choose between them. I learned this from playwright Stephen Tomlinson, who suggested to keep all your passions in your life. And then quote from Stephen Tomlinson, let them talk to each other, something will begin to happen. Mm. <laughs> and certainly the way I've experienced my work this year when I've been working on three different things is that maybe I can't get to that client work because I've got something else pressing, but in the time that I've dealt with the pressing thing, which might be another week or two, I've already come up with some creative solution for that client work that I haven't had time <laughs> yeah. to work on. Yeah. And when I started building Lead Mama Lead, it was taking me away from some of my other things, but then it led into inspiration back from my first projects. It led into leads potentially for my consulting work. So like that quote said, they, 
they'll fit together in some way. Yeah. Particularly if you're aligned with your values. Yeah. And for me, I've really come to understand that my mission is this fundamental belief that the economy isn't working for people, be that environmentally, be that for the working mothers who want a better deal or working fathers who want a better deal, or be that for businesses needing to create more social good. Fundamentally, I believe that the economy is a social construction and therefore we can transform it. And that's that's what is the common thread between the things that I do. Mm. And even the other things that I don't currently do that I'm really interested in, like mental health. And if we can understand mental health, provide better support around mental health, then we can support people to contribute to the economy in a way that works for them and not just marginalise people who don't have a certain marketable skill set the way the current economy accepts that they should be contributing. So. Yeah, that's a powerful idea. I want to talk about the other things that you're working on as well and how they all link up before you do. Um, there's a couple of things you said. One was about, anyway, you talked about something that that you were into, but it was actually an indication that you're into something else. I can't remember what it was, but it just struck this thought in my head that I've always had this interest in co-working. And I thought I used to run one in Sydney and I always thought that I wanted to run another co-working space. But that just got me thinking that actually I'm just really interested in creating good workplaces. Mm. And what I'm more interested in is building a business that has a good workplace and where people can thrive. And I was just interested that you mentioned a similar idea that, you know, sometimes we can have a thought and it can seem like we're really interested in one thing, but it's actually a little bit of a sign or just a step in the path of the thing that we're deep, more deeply interested in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the other thing I was going to talk about was, oh yeah, just yeah, that quote that you talked about. Like that's, you know, the three projects that I'm working on at the moment couldn't be, in a way, much more different. And when I think about them in isolation, like I'm working on a breath mints and a podcast and I work in this not-for-profit called Code for Australia. And the only thing really linking them is the only reason they talk to each other or they're connected is because of me. But they're all, yeah, like you were saying, they're an aligned and genuine expression of who I am. So, yeah, yeah, I really like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, you can see why that brought tears to my eyes when I read it because sometimes it's really hard to find a space where you're understood when you're really going against the grain. I think that's something I got from my dad particularly and he had um, quite serious physical disability, severe arthritis, so he could still use his body but he couldn't work. And then he also had mental health issues that stem from a difficult childhood. But he was an extremely talented artist and musician and never could quite, with the challenges that he had physically and emotionally, he could never quite himself within the economy and so I grew up seeing that and and seeing extraordinary talent going unrecognized and the sadness that comes from that and this was for him like really in the 80s and 90s and that was the height of like hyper consumerism and neoliberal globalization and so it was a point in time 
which I think that maybe if he was at a point in time like more like now and, and where we're heading as a society, maybe he had, would have had more chance. Yeah. Because we are much more embracing the creative and just different ways of living in the world. There's not this real sense of homogeny anymore. Yeah. And so I think I learned a lot of that from him, just questioning the status quo and believing that things could or should be different. Yeah. Mm. There's so much work that's done that, you know, thinking about it seems unnecessary. The market kind of demands it, if you like, like the, the economy that we've constructed for the time being seems to demand it. And yet then there's so much work that could be done that that isn't, that would be such valuable work, like maybe the, the type of work that your dad could contribute or, you know, just a whole host of other necessary work that just isn't getting done. And that idea of redesigning things for more inclusiveness, I suppose, and more diversity, more expression, it's exciting and it's a big idea. I don't know, I guess the way mm -hmm. that to start is in small steps like what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the only way, otherwise you get overwhelmed. Just yeah. create a little bit of change in your corner of the world, see where it leads and, and then create some more. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about the blog then and how that ties in. Yeah, so the blog came out of my interest in sustainability and also I've worked in China with factory workers. I worked for an NGO, a women's NGO in China for a year in Beijing and so part of that was connected to factory workers. But although I wasn't directly connected in with the garment industry, I understand the conditions of the garment industry workers in China. And for a long time I thought, I felt guilty about buying clothes. Um, and I, I was never really into consumerism to it a huge degree, but when I bought new clothes, I'd feel, I know this has been manufactured in a way that isn't good for the workers, and I know this is highly polluting, but I don't have any other options. And slowly I started to learn, actually there are ethical and sustainable options out there. And years ago, when I was working in international development, and I, I thought, well, if we can have fair trade chocolate, why don't we have fair trade clothes? And we do now, but that was about 10 years ago, so it didn't really exist back then. Yeah. So it's interesting to see that evolve, and I think the clothing industry is a little bit behind chocolate, but we'll see it increase. So once I realised that I could actually shop in alignment with my ethics and values, I made the decision not to buy any more unethical clothing and started to do a lot of research to support my decisions and eventually thought, well, if I felt this way, then there would be a lot of other people out there who, who know a bit about the problems and want to shop differently but just assume, like I did, that there aren't any options. Yeah. So that's when I started my blog, which is called Tortoise and Lady Grey. Yeah. And that, that title, Tortoise, is from Tortoise and the Hare. So the belief that slow and sustainable fashion will win the race in the end. So 
It's about a hopeful message. And Lady Grey is meant to be a symbol of timeless style. So just encouraging people not to worry about fads and just find the clothes that suit them and the styles that suit them and then invest in good quality that will last. And then you need to use far fewer resources and you can afford to buy the ethical stuff because you're only buying a few things a year. And yeah. 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 And I do have, because of my backgrounds in community development and social enterprise, I do have a, quite a strong focus on social enterprise models of fashion. And so I cover that a lot on my blog. So that's quite, quite unique compared to a lot of other bloggers in the niche. And also my long-term goal because of my background with China and my interest in sustainable fashion and community development is to start a fashion social enterprise that works with textile artisans in, in um, indigenous communities in southwest China. Wow. But that's a long-term goal. I've got two young children at the moment, so I can't really travel and you know, yeah. just want to build up other sources of income first before you... Those are the kinds of projects that have small chance of earning a decent income from, so it has to <laughs> probably always be a side project, so I need to just work on other things yeah. and, and be have a solid foundation for my, my work and my financial earning capacity with other things first. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you probably listened to the Siggy episode that I did. Yeah. yeah. yeah and do you know Siggy? No, Have I don't actually. That's, yeah. um, I meant to reach out to her after that episode and I, I, I forgot, but I'll have to. I hadn't come across her yeah. blog before. So yeah. Yeah. Is there much going on in Canberra in regard to sustainable fashion and the social enterprises that you're talking about? Not in terms of fashion social enterprise, but one of the pioneering sustainable fashion brands in Australia is PurePod and they are Canberra-based. Is that I think. a baby clothing or no? No, it's um, women's, women's, women's clothing. clothing. Okay, cool. She was originally from Canberra and then started when she lived in Byron Bay but she's been in Canberra running that label for quite a long time. Yeah. And there's another zero waste fashion designer who's Canberra based and she does all Australian made sustainable fabrics and zero waste pattern design, cutting. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So they're the main two and there's, there's a few sort of slow ethical fashion labels around but don't have the same focus on sustainable fa fabrics. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. a little small scene. Yeah. yeah. We had um, Fash Fest, which is the Canberra fashion runway show, just the start of this month. And one out of the six shows was um, sustainable and slow fashion brands. So I yeah. thought that was quite a good proportion of the overall showing. So, yeah. Yeah. That is. It's yeah. positive. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You said, so you got the blog, you're doing Lead Mama Lead. Yeah. You do freelance. Community so, development work. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Tell us about that as well. So I have a few clients, but mainly I'm working with one long-term client who is a leadership and cross-cultural innovation training project for young people from Australia and China. So I actually participated in their program in 2015 yeah. and that, that was their first year. All right. It's a world first sort of bilateral program which aims to bring together young people from Australia and China and create long-term enduring relationships that can create the networks and the capacities to really drive big 
like global change. So it was started by Andrea Miles, who's young Australian woman who used to work for the Australia China Business Council. Oh, yeah. And she was really frustrated on the way the Australians viewed the relationship between Australia and China. It was more about, oh, we'll sell you our minerals. And there wasn't a, like an exchange of talent and ideas and she just wanted to change that conversation and she knew that there were a lot of young people in Australia who were frustrated that their China interest and expertise wasn't valued in, in their jobs and she wanted to create that space to make new opportunities. So, yeah. And it's about equipping young people with those relationships but also the skills and self-belief to be able to start creating new enterprises that transcend borders and yeah. yeah. So it's a really great project and I really, I loved being on it and I, now I love working for them. Yeah. Um, yeah, as a consultant, so yeah. Yeah, it's cool. And just on that, when you say young people, like what age groups? 18 to 35. Okay. So it's called the China Australia Millennial Project. So yeah, it's aimed at young adults in the millennial generation. Yeah, okay. And have, uh, I mean, it's pretty, I guess it hasn't been going for too long, but you know what, it'll be fascinating, I suppose, to see what does emerge when, you know, those, as those relationships grow over a number of years. Yeah. Um, what, the bringing together of two different cultures and two different ways of thinking could, yeah, bring. Mm, yeah, it'd be really interesting to do a, bit, a sort of social network analysis, which is a social science technique, okay. looking at how the network grows and the connections that are made and what sorts of um, opportunities come out of those networks. But we are seeing new initiatives sort of come out of the relationships formed. Yeah. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That is. And is that the only client that you work on at the moment in terms of the freelance uh, stuff? Only long term. Yeah. But I do a bit of other stuff with not-for-profits and social enterprise um, on an advisory board for a, a social impact startup that's aiming to benchmark charitable projects and yeah. just a few different things like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you a bit about Canberra as well. Like this is, it might not be the first conversation that comes out in the series, but this is the first conversation that I'm recording with yeah. a, a person based in Canberra, in Canberra. In terms of this type of, you know, subtle disruption, I suppose, or this kind of, the people that you hang out with, like what's the, what's the feel in Canberra? What's happening in Canberra? I think it's very, very under the surface. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> I sort of know a few people who are subtle disruptors. And I think a few of the women who are starting to be more involved in Lead Mama Lead are starting to think in that way. So that's pretty cool to see how that will grow. Yeah. But Canberra's pretty homogenous, a lot of public servants, a lot of the nine to five. So it can be a bit isolating as yeah. someone who's just a bit outside of that. But yeah, there's a small, I think it's growing. We're seeing, you know, innovation spaces and co-working spaces cropping up. Yeah. There is one co-working space that's focused on social innovation now in Canberra. I think in five years' time, it'll be quite an interesting place in terms of that scene. Yeah. It's pretty small. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I guess, in, you know, in, in many ways, you're 
probably one of the leaders in uh, you know, <laughs> helping people start to think like this. Yeah, I, I think it's very disparate and not well connected. So it'd be really good to see if more of a community can grow around it so that people can be yeah, better connected and yeah, yeah. have more of a sense of a whole community rather yeah. than different little actors all over the place doing their own thing. And I'm an introvert, so I tend to just do my own thing and I um, probably should do, make a bit more effort to seek out. I did recently connect with um, a young couple who they write a blog called The Minimalist Vegan and they also just recently started a, an online store which stocks vegan and eco-friendly, cruelty-free, homeward, uh, home goods and personal care goods. So, that's someone you know doing a business for social good. So there's a few things around, and my my good friend and mentor who sort of kicked me off on my whole journey by encouraging me to do the blog. We used to work together in international development, and she's she's probably you know one of the people I look to in, in Canberra in terms of that subtle disruption. And Can you mention her name? Well? Um, Megan Gilmore. She, her, and I used to work together when I worked in international development and she's been a good friend and mentor since since then. Actually, before I met her, I'd never met anyone who understood the way my brain worked. So we have a really good alignment with the way that we think. So she runs Art of Agency, which is a company that's all about promoting business as social good and creating learning platforms and services around that. Yeah. And and I'll probably be doing a bit of collaborative work with her cool. in that space. Yeah. And she also runs a, a national not-for-profit that's about keeping very sick kids who are in hospital better connected to their school communities um, because she had a son who went through that for a couple of years and had a really hard time with his connection. He lost his connection to his peers because yeah. the frameworks aren't in place to keeping kids connected with their the schools that they were enrolled in before they got sick. So she's doing some really interesting advocacy work in that space and, and looking at getting some teleport robots into schools wow. that can that can kids can then video link in to their schools. So yeah. Yeah. Cool. yeah. Is that like the kind of robot that was on have you seen the Snowden film? No, I haven't seen uh, it. Right at the end he sort of comes out on stage because he's stuck in a um, in an embassy. Oh no, he's stuck in Russia somewhere. He, um, he appears on stage on a screen, on a robot yeah, that kind yeah. of wheels on the stage. That's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And you can control them from where you are. Yeah. Actually, um, there's an Australian young woman. She's from Sydney now. Oh no, no, Melbourne maybe. Marita Chung, who runs a company, a robotics company that does them in Australia. So oh, wow. she's the only person that supplies them in Australia. Yeah. Actually, you should probably interview her. Yeah. She's really interesting. She's young, Chinese-Australian, grew up in public housing. She launched uh, RoboGirls. She did engineering and RoboGirls goes into school to encourage young girls to go into engineering. Yeah. And then she runs two companies. One is does the teleport robots and the other one does AI apps to help blind people to see what's in front of them so that they can point their phone at something and it will describe what's in front of them. 
outside. She's pretty incredible, actually. Yeah. <laughs> That's that was Marita Chung. Mar Marita Chung. Marita Chung. Yeah. 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 But Marita and Megan both sound like great people. If any of you, I have to get your yeah, details. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got a couple of questions that you're probably aware of that I ask as we wrap up. And the first one's about something that you'd like to be part of disrupting one day that you're not part of at the moment that mm. you might daydream about and ticks away in the back of your mind. Is this something yeah, that comes yeah. to mind? Yeah, it's, it's mental health, which I sort of mentioned earlier in the conversation. My dad had mental health problems. I have a sister who's in Canberra who has schizophrenia, um, has been very, very sick for a very long time, and, and I'm the only family in Canberra, so I'm her family carer. Yeah. So she doesn't live with me, but I'm the connection point with the public health system, and I've found that whole process really isolating, even for me as a postgraduate, educated, fairly empowered person trying to get your head around the system, what your rights are in the system, how you can get the system to better serve your family member who's very sick and can't make decisions for them and how you can get doctors to actually adequately connect with you and, and listen to your opinions and something around that, yeah. definitely but I don't have the energy for that now. I need to be in a different place because, you know, as a family carrier, you carry a lot of trauma as well, seeing your family member very sick. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I get what you're saying. Have you got any, like, is there any inklings of what it might look like, though, or do you just think, no, that, that needs to change? I'm, it's in the idea garden. We'll just leave it there for a while and we'll yeah. Yeah, get to it when... Yeah, I, d I, I don't know at this point. For me, the biggest improvement came when my sister was put under a guardianship order, so not from not me as a guardian but the, the state, and that suddenly meant she had an advocate and then all these things that I didn't know that we could do, like we can, we, we can ref tell the doctors, no, you cannot release her from hospital and put her back in her public housing flat because you're putting her into danger. And so the hospitals had to hold on to her because they've been told, no, we do not give permission. Whereas before, she used to just cycle in and out of hospital and be dumped back into her flat where she had no support. Yeah. Or she could, there was some funding for support, but she could just close the door and not open it. And the, so she could refuse the support, which yeah. meant that she got very unsafe and sick. So just things like that, that didn't happen without the guardian there. And the guardian just being able to say, no, you need to take that support off the table for Lena because we can't have that as an option. If she's too sick for this option, then you can't have this option on the table, which she's definitely too sick for. Cause... So just things like that that I wouldn't have known I could do. Yeah. And then the onus is back on the system to find the solution instead yeah. of giving a substandard solution that doesn't meet her needs. So yeah. There's definitely something that needs to happen. And I don't know what it is. I, I did a few years ago present a paper at a conference on the family carer's perspective of the mental health system and, and some reforms that needed to happen. But, yeah, I don't know where that will go. Yeah. One, one day. A starting point. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's obviously massive prevalence and probably underreporting of mental illness around Australia at the very least. Yeah, the yeah. The world and, and the system fails so much that people get very ill and yeah. before they get any help. 
and a lot of crisis could be averted if there was more prevention and better servicing of better servicing of people at the early stage of development and certainly I read a policy paper a few years ago that said that children of a parent with a mental illness have specific needs and and although they might not end up having a mental illness themselves they they have needs that need to be addressed and when I read that policy paper I actually broke down crying because I felt like all this time that I felt, it felt like it was hard to have a parent with a mental illness. Now I understand that the system failed me because, because we were never, ever once offered a service as children of, a, of someone with a mental illness. Even though my dad was involved in the, men, in the health system through my whole life, we, the system never thought to reach out to the family, the children, yeah. or indeed the partner. Yeah. And maybe my sister's acute mental health problem could have been picked up much earlier if there was some sort of support. And maybe some of the stresses that I experienced as a teenager with a parent with mental health could have been alleviated had yeah. there been some service there. Yeah, totally. It's something that I'm only just really learning about and hearing a bit about, but I guess it's much more prevalent than I'm aware of, is just the whole field of service design that, to me, seems really exciting. Some of the ideas that are coming through there, and I guess it'll take a while for them to, you know, drift through the various sectors of our, of our society and through to government as well. But, yeah, it's kind of what you're talking about there, like designing, designing the service in such a way that it, meets everybody's needs and is accessible mm. to, the, to people. You know, if an empowered person finds it hard to engage with, then, you know, someone who's less empowered is going to find it so much harder yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 The last question is about yourself and a, a subtle disruption or a small change that you've made in your own life that's started you on this path or, you know, sustains you on this path. You know, it's, it would be interesting for other people to hear about as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I guess there's a few. Do you mind if I say more than one? No, nah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first one for me happened when I was 16 and because I grew up on welfare and we were vegetarians as well, so I was always sort of the like, kid that got picked on because there were things that made us different. And when I was 16, I just had this revelation that, you know, I don't actually like any of these people that, uh, nasty to me anyway and so why do I care and I just suddenly just realized I don't have to care about the haters which was a pretty significant revelation just yeah. just learning not to care about those people that really aren't your people and not that I you wish them ill but just not being worried when when someone doesn't support me or isn't isn't nice to me yeah 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 so that was a big one for me at 16 especially at 16 yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the second one is yoga and a sort of mindfulness self-reflective practice yeah. that's made a huge difference and I think I think my personality type I'm quite reflective anyway but just having yoga and the framework around that and I've practiced yoga for 10 years now and just what it gives me off the mat in terms of just being able to take a step back from any situation and go, you know, is, 
is the way I'm reacting to this really the way that the situation is playing out? You know, just bringing that into personal relationships, bringing that into motherhood, just, yeah, bringing that into the workplace. Yeah. That's been very powerful in my journey. And I, I used to be quite a worrier, used to be, I carried a lot of trauma from, from growing up in a you know, complex family um, and just being able to let go of, of that and be much more peaceful and at ease with myself and yeah. yeah, yoga's been very powerful for that. Yeah. And the third one I sort of have already mentioned but starting a side project, like that blog, although I don't earn my income from it, I've learned so much about myself and just having to put myself out there in little ways enabled me to put myself out there in big ways in terms of launching a freelance career and being an introverted person but being able to pitch my services to organisations and have self-belief in what I have to offer, my skills and, Yeah. yeah. I think that that was a very powerful, seemingly small thing to do, but it had profound impacts. So. Yeah. Yeah. Big three great things. Yeah, I concur <laughs> with all of them. <laughs> yeah, Summer, thank you for taking the time to chat and introducing us to Canberra. It's been lovely to sit here with you and talk yeah. about all that you're up to. Thank you. It's been great. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I have a question for you. If you had free reign to design the way you worked, what would this look like? I would love to hear your thoughts about it. You could post something on the Facebook page, through Twitter or Instagram, or even send me an email, adam at subtledisruptors.com. And of course, let me know if there are subtle disruptors you think I should know about. Coming up next week, I'll be talking with Corey Warsaw about putting values first in financial planning. I'm Adam Murray, and I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected, and resolute in your own quest of subtle disruption. Bye for now. Thank you.